Good morning. Hey, if you're a guest, my name's Rob. We're glad that you're here with us this morning. Uh, we'd love for you to get connected, learn a little bit about New Hope, and so you can fill out that white card or stop at the Welcome Center, catch one of us. Uh, we'll be walking around. We'd love to talk to you, hear your story, uh, get you any information you need about New Hope and how to get connected around here. Yesterday, we had Justin's Run for Hope. You heard that in the video, and what an incredible event. And one of the reasons I want to bring it up again is to say this. It's your generosity. Uh, to give to the initiative that allowed us to expand these facilities that made all the difference yesterday. As all kinds of people from our community came in to run and then to run from the weather uh, into the building, it was really good. We were here together. Uh, we had a wonderful time. It was a great turnout. And uh, a lot of that's not possible. The smoothness of that event wouldn't be possible had you not been faithful in your giving to the REACH initiative. And so thank you for those who are a part of that and continue to give to that faithfully uh, because we were able to have a big impact yesterday uh, in our community. Hey, we're in a teaching series uh, called The Created You, and we're looking at uh, different characteristics that God has uh, kind of said about us that he has created us for, and this teaching lines up with what our young people are going to hear in their vacation Bible school at VBS. And so uh, VBS comes up once a year. It's a week-long event that takes place here at New Hope. It takes hundreds of volunteers. It takes uh, all kinds of effort to pull this off. And so if you're somebody who's like, I got some time in the summer, I could help, we would love for you to get plugged in and serve at the VBS that we're having here in this community. If you have kids or grandkids that aren't signed up for it yet, uh, we would love for you to get them signed up. You can jump on our website. Again, stop at the Welcome Center. We're really excited. And I'm excited because we're learning this stuff at a high level. And that week, they're going to be learning the same things we're learning in here and have been these last few weeks on their level uh, during VBS. So uh, if you're here during the sermon series, you'll have quite a bit to talk to your kids about uh, after each day of VBS. And so today we're going to be in John chapter 9, and we're going to talk about um, trust and how we were created for trust. You know, one of my favorite um, stories in the entire Bible comes out of 1 Kings chapter 18. When I became a Christian, I was 17 years old. And I was always drawn to this story because it's pretty incredible. You've got Elijah, the prophet of God, who's going to go up against 450 prophets of Baal. And they're going to meet. Baal is a god that didn't exist but had a big following. And I know you've never heard of anything like that. So uh, they meet together on what's called Mount Carmel. And Elijah is going to have a showdown with them. And one of the reasons I love this story is because by now... Considering everything that's going on in our world, this should have been made into a pretty incredible movie, and it hasn't yet. It's such a good story. And so Elijah's on Mount Carmel, and he challenges the prophets of Baal. They come together. They're going to have a showdown to prove whose God is real. And Elijah, being a gentleman, offers that these prophets can go first with their big crowd. And so 450 of them, they start to try to worship Baal and call upon Baal, and it's not working, so they cut themselves, and they're bleeding. It gets really weird. And then Elijah does what any good man would do, and he begins to trash talk. I love it. He begins to say, hey, maybe he's not paying attention. Maybe he's not there. Maybe he's in the restroom. Maybe he's just missed you. What's going on? It's because he's not there. And so he said, my turn. And so God told Elijah to build an altar. So he builds an altar and has a sacrifice on that altar. And then God says, dig a trench around that and completely soak it. I mean, put so much water that it's unbelievable. And so he just completely drenches his, fills the trench, drenches the entire altar, and then prays to God, and God shows up in a powerful way. I mean, fire literally comes from heaven and consumes everything, and everyone's blown away, and then a battle ensues, and the prophets of Baal are killed, and Elijah stands in victory. He stands in victory until the next day. See, a lot of times we stop teaching at that point, but the next day he receives a message from the royal family. 
Ahab and Jezebel. And they say, hey, may the gods curse us if we don't do to you what you did to those prophets by this time tomorrow. Now, I've got a lot of emails in my day. <laughs> Nothing like that. Okay? And so, like, whoa, you are really intense. So he runs. He's scared. He takes off running. In fact, the text tells us that he goes a full day's journey into the wilderness, trying to hide out and get away. And what I love about this story is this. That the whole time he's running, God is still faithful. And God still shows up in his life and provides food and drink for him in the wilderness. And he eats, and he drinks. And then God tells him, come up into this cave. I want to talk to you. And it's in the cave where Elijah says that there was an earthquake and the earth shook. There was a fire. There was a terrible windstorm. And in none of those things did he hear the voice of God. But it was in this small, still whisper that he hears God's voice. And God speaks to him with a question that has always got me. And the question is this, Elijah, what are you doing here? What are you doing? I've proved myself over and over to you. You can trust me. What are you doing? Why are you running? Don't you trust me in these different areas of your life? And each time I read that question, I kind of think to myself, there are areas of my life that I hold on pretty tight to. I don't know that I quite trust. And it's as if God is saying to me, Rob, what are you doing? And I come back to Psalm 136. Now, here's the interesting thing about this, guys. This is where um, it's just really uh, incredible what God can do. I want to let you in on a little behind the scenes. Um, Typically, we have a meeting during the week where we plan out our services. Plan out the songs, and we talk about it, and we, uh, here's what the sermon's on. We couldn't have that meeting this week for a variety of reasons. And so Ben is here. Uh, ben Faust is here. He led us in worship this morning. And so he planned the services. I came in last night. Sermon already done. I said, hey, what are you singing through? What are you planning? And he brings out uh, what he's going to be doing. And at the top of the list, it says Psalm 136. He's going to read that scripture, and then he's going to sing that song based on Psalm 136. And I thought to myself, no way. The driving thrust of my entire sermon is Psalm 136. You've got to be kidding. He says, nope. And I think God wants us to hear something today. And so in Psalm 136, the psalmist over and over and over again repeats himself. God's steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. And each time in my life where God has encountered, I've encountered God kind of asking me that question that he asked Elijah, Rob, what are you doing? This is how he asks it. Rob, don't you know that my steadfast love, my love endures forever. I'm there all the time. I'm never failing, never quitting. My love endures forever. And what I'm learning as I journey with Jesus and and walk with him and allow him to work in my life, what I'm learning in my journey is this, this is easier said than done to trust him. It's easy to speak Christianese. We're really good at it. We put all the verbiage around everything and make it sound so good, and yet there are certain areas of my life, and if you're like me, you're like this too, where we kind of hold on a little bit tighter. Sure, I trust God with this and this, but this thing, I kind of hold on just a little bit tighter to it. One of those things for me is parenting. I I had a rough upbringing, and maybe it's partly that and some other things where when it comes to my kids, I just kind of hold on tight. There's something about it. I just have a deep love for my children, and I just want to protect them. And so I don't think the motivation's wrong, but there are times where I trust me more than God. This kind of came out this week as I was talking to a friend. I've got a friend whose daughter is the same age as my daughter. And he said that his daughter, this past week in school, got in trouble for punching a kid. And I thought, in trouble? She should get an award. She punched a boy. It was a boy. And so this boy, let me explain. You're like, what? Like, she punched a boy. 
Now they get home that night and they're sitting together and he is a really good dad. He begins to talk to his daughter. His daughter doesn't want to talk. She doesn't want to talk. Finally he gets it out of her and she just starts weeping. She says, he was making fun of my outfit in front of everybody and he wouldn't stop. He just kept making fun of the way I looked. I couldn't take it anymore so I punched him. And I thought, that's awesome, dude. <laughs> that was my first thought. Like, Yes. But then, like, the anger welled up in me because I thought, I have a daughter the same age, and I, don't, I hate the thought of what she was feeling in that moment. Being isolated and bullied in that moment, it just made me so mad. So I wanted to lighten the mood a little bit, and so I said, hey, did you happen to catch this kid's full name and social security number? I want to try to ruin his life. <laughs> I said, no, really, we know a lot of people. We could raid the house. It could be this crazy thing. Uh, and he's like, dude, they're in first grade. And I was like, I get it. I'm sorry. As I thought through it, though, with my own kids, I, I, this really welled up inside of me, and I was brought back to Psalm 136, where God just kind of whispers, hey, don't you know? Rob, my steadfast love endures forever. I love your kids more than you do. Won't you release control a little bit, begin to trust me a little bit with them? I love them. I will always be there. My steadfast, never-quitting, never-defeated love will endure forever. This is the lesson we're going to learn about what it means to trust God. What does it mean for us to trust God? We're going to learn that lesson as we look at John chapter 9 and this encounter that Jesus has with a blind man. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there or get your device and turn it to John chapter 9. And we're going to look at this incredible story, this encounter. Now, you've got to remember something about John's gospel. We've said the last couple weeks, it's a little different than the other three. You open your New Testament, you come to four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what are called the synoptic gospels written around the same uh, period of time and follow the same kind of method. They're, they track all these. It, you get to John, it just reads different. But not just that. I mean, John reads a little different in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and the book of Revelation. So he wrote quite a bit in your New Testament. John puts to use allegory and symbolism and a lot of Old Testament references because his audience would have been familiar with it. And so that's why when you read John, you've got to read it a little bit more carefully. You don't just read it literal. You pay attention to the details. Why is he referencing this? What Old Testament passage is that? And what does he mean by this? What is this pointing to beyond itself? Because it's not all literal. And this is how John approaches it. And so the same thing's true in this passage. What we're going to learn is, yes, this event that we're about to talk about, it actually happened. Like, it really did happen. But it also points to something even bigger than the event. And so we're going to see that in John chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 1. Jesus and his disciples are traveling, and verse 1 says this. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. So the text doesn't indicate how the disciples and Jesus knew that this man was blind from birth, other than this. Later on in the passage, you pick up that the uh, religious leaders want to interview everybody else in the area. And so they kind of go after everybody else and, because they know that this guy was well-known in the community. Why he's well-known is because when you were blind, if you were blind in that day, the only thing you were able to do is you wake up in the morning and you go out and you beg for help because you weren't able to do a whole lot of other things. And so everybody in that community would have got used to seeing this guy begging for help. That's the blind guy that's always there, always asking for help. That's what he does. And you ever, like I grew up kind of moving around a lot, so I never got to experience this growing up. But as I moved here to Indiana, I've learned there's a lot of people that were born here, lived here, stayed here, and this is home. And that's kind of a neat thing. But you'll hear things like this. As far back as I can remember... And then they fill in the blank. I'm like, I don't remember that far back because I wasn't here. Uh, this is what the experience would have been like for them. As far back as I can remember, that guy's been there begging. As far back as I can remember, he's always been around. And so he was blind from birth. Now, this does show this man is blind physically. But Jesus is going to use this to teach that he's referencing a spiritual blindness. 
that goes far beyond just this man's physical blindness. Verse 2, the disciples asked him, they come to him and they say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Kind of a loaded question, kind of difficult to understand. From their perspective at that time, uh, what they understood is based back in Genesis 3. In Genesis chapter 3, you have Adam and Eve, they sin. Sin enters the world and corruption begins. And so it's like a wor- this idea of worldview. The way they viewed the world was that God created and it was perfect. Sin corrupted it and the repercussions carry on and on and on. They would have understand, understood the perspective of the friends of a guy named Job. If you read your Old Testament, come up against this guy, Job. And in the Old Testament, Job's a guy that had everything. He was a good man with high character, and everything was taken from him, and he suffered greatly. And his friends around him said, the suffering means that your life is cursed. Your life is cursed because of the sins of the people that came before you. And so the disciples, they come to Jesus, and they have that same frame of thinking. Like, is it something this guy did? Is it something he did, and, and, or is it something that his parents did? And, and so his punish, the punishment is on him for what the parents did. And, and Jesus is like, no, 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 it's none of that. He's going to answer them here in just a moment. What you need to understand is this, that the punishment, the, the things that you endure that are consequences of sin, you're responsible for the sin that you commit. And the punishment that you receive for that sin, the consequences, if you will, have a ripple effect. They can affect other people. There's nothing wrong with understanding that. Like, my sin can have an impact on my kids and on everybody else. That's a true statement. But God doesn't look at my children and say, because of what your dad did, I'm going to punish you. There's no room for that thinking in the New Testament. God doesn't operate that way. Because of what your dad did, you're in trouble. And God doesn't operate that way. You're responsible for what you do. It can affect other people, but the punishments that you receive are not because of the sins of the people that came before you. And so Jesus responds to him in verse 3. He says, It's not that this man had sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. He says, This isn't the purpose of his blindness. His blindness is going to serve a bigger cause, Jesus says. Because of his blindness, I'm going to do something that points to something much bigger than him. It's much, much larger than him. It serves a much bigger purpose, and it's going to show that Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the one who came into the world. This is going to actually point to something that says Jesus is the Messiah. It's going to be very clear after what Jesus does. This is one of the first times Jesus steps out and says, it's me, I'm, I'm him. And he does it in a powerful way. Verses 4 and 5, Jesus continues teaching the disciples, and he says this. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So now you have these two images, light and darkness, day and night. John uses those images a lot in his Gospels. As a matter of fact, in chapter 1, he describes Jesus as the Word became flesh. It was referenced, Ben referenced it earlier in the service. The Word became flesh. And later on, he'll say, and the light of the world came into the darkness of the world, but the darkness did not recognize the light. And so what Jesus essentially is saying is this, I'm the light of the world. I'm coming into this dark world. I'm like a flashlight in a dark closet. And while I'm here, before I'm betrayed and and crucified, while I'm here, we need to do as much as we can to shine that light as bright as possible so people know why I'm here, so people know why I came. Right? That's what he's saying. And then he says, because there's coming a time where the night will come and no one can work. And that time he's referencing is between when he's betrayed and when he ascends to the, the right hand of the Father. He ascends after his resurrection. There's a period where no one can do anything. The disciples run scared and things aren't happening. He says, after that, I'll send the helper. We talked about the Holy Spirit last week. And the Holy Spirit will come and help you continue to be that light. But there is a period of time of darkness. Before the darkness shows up, we've got to shine this light as bright as we can. And so while I'm here... 
I'm going to show everyone I'm the light of the world. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that was sent. And so I'm going to heal this man, but it's more than just healing him. And so here's the two things you need to understand about the healing that's about to take place. One, it is a miracle. It actually happened. Jesus performed the miracle of healing this man. Two, it's a sign. It's a sign. And John records signs in his gospel that point to Jesus being the Messiah. This is one of them. This points to something bigger than itself. And what it's pointing to is this. While this man is physically blind, the world is spiritually blind. And Jesus comes to the spiritually blind world, and he brings light so that they might see. And so it's pointing to something bigger. The Messiah comes. The Savior comes. And so now Jesus says, verse 6, having said these things, so now Jesus teaches them, hey, what I'm about to do, you need to understand what it's about. It's about me being the Messiah. It's about bigger than just a healing. So I'm going to physically heal, and it'll point to the spiritual healing that comes from me. Having said these things, he spits on the ground, and he made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. So this is fascinating, right? Parents, you're welcome. Your kids are going to spit, and you're going to say, don't do that. You're going to say, Jesus did. What, what now, Mom? Right? And so then you just say, well, Jesus should be the only one that did it, right? So Jesus spits on the ground, and he takes the mud, and he applies it to the, the guy's eyes, and you're wondering why, because other times in the Gospels, he would spit, and he would use the saliva to heal. Like, this is the grossest sermon ever. Like, he would, he would use that to heal. This time, though, he mixes it with the mud. Why is that? He creates mud with it. A lot of people think this points back to Genesis chapter 2. Again, this is a sign that points to something bigger. And in Genesis chapter 2, God creates. The creator creates man from what? From the dust of the earth. And so now Jesus, and, and as a sign of being a creator, of being the Messiah, comes and says, I will take this dirt and I will bring healing to this man. Others believe that it wasn't just uh, pointing back to Genesis chapter 2, but they believed that this doubly intensified the blindness to illustrate just how powerful the healing would be. So he's blind, yes, but adding the mud just really solidifies the fact that there's blindness, and he had physical blindness. The mud signifies the spiritual blindness, and now he's able to see. The mud's gone, so you can spiritually see. And Much like what happened in 1 Kings 18, where God told Elijah, don't just uh, build an altar, completely flood it. Go overboard because I want to doubly intensify just how incredible this miracle is going to be, that I'm the only true God. In that same way, maybe Jesus is taking this mud and applying it. Either way, he takes the mud, he applies it to the man's eyes, and then in verse 7, he looks at him and he says, now I want you to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And so he went and he washed and he came back seeing. Fascinating. Uh, we learn together as a church. I don't ever want you to think that myself or David stand up here and we're anything uh, other than guys who love Jesus and are chasing after him. That's it. And so after first service, somebody came to me and they were like, hey, have you, I, I noticed this while you were teaching. And I was like, man, that's awesome. I don't welcome everyone to do that every Sunday. It would overwhelm me. Uh, this was a guy I just really admire. I've got a good relationship with him. He came to me and he said, hey, have you thought about this? Like, man, I, I just saw this as you were reading. It just kind of dawned on me. And what it was is this. He tells the man, go wash in the pool of Siloam, but he never tells him what's going to happen if he does. He never tells the man, like, if you do, you'll be able to see. He just says, go do it. He never told him what would happen if he were to actually go into wash. Now he tells him, he says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. If you remember a few weeks ago when we talked about baptism, uh, we learned that baptism is not just a New Testament concept. It was in the Old Testament. They had these giant pools that the Jews would come to. They'd get down in these pools, and they would baptize. They would wash themselves to prepare for worship. So they would go into worship after washing themselves. And so this pool, this man would have been familiar with. He would have gone to it, and he would have got down, and he would have been able to wash himself completely. And we would be remiss if we missed 
the symbolism of what takes place when we're baptized. See, spiritually blind, we come to the water, as we talked about, and you're lowered into the water, and you're raised back up, and it's as if now you can see. Spiritually blind, we encounter the truth of Jesus, the light of the world. We encounter the light of the world. He changes everything, and we come up out of that water, and now we are a new creation, Paul says, who's able to see differently. And Paul even says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it's, it's you can, now we see. We don't see like we used to. We see differently. What perfect picture of what takes place with this man. It happened in Paul's own life. Chapter 9 of Acts. He's baptized. Scales fall from his eyes. He's able to see like he never saw before. And so Jesus tells him, go and wash. Go and wash. Didn't tell him why, and the guy goes. I want you to think about this. This is an incredible truth that takes place. This guy knew when he woke up every day what was going to happen. He knew what that day held. Many of you kind of feel the same way. Like, I know that feeling. I'm trapped at work, right? I wake up, I know what today's going to be. This guy woke up every day, and he knew, every day I'm going to get up, I'm going to get ready, I'm going to go out where there's, into the, the marketplace, and I'm going to sit, and I'm going to beg. And everybody knows who I am, and they all look down on me, and they all don't have respect for me, and they all mistreat me, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to beg every single day. Only this day, this day everything changed. This day, as he's begging, he hears this guy talking. There's something about the way Jesus was talking, and Jesus comes closer to him, and there's something about the voice that causes the man to just stay there, and he hears Jesus talking, and he doesn't quite understand what Jesus is saying, and we know that because at the end of the chapter, uh, that's when he comes to understand who Jesus is. And, and so it, it's, he's like, what is going on? I don't understand. What? And then all of a sudden he hears Jesus spit, and he's got to be thinking, oh, things, that's weird. All right. And then he can kind of tell Jesus maybe kneels down. He can't see him. He's blind, but he kneels down. He makes mud. And then all of a sudden Jesus touches his face with the mud. And what is this guy thinking? Like, oh, whose joke am I the butt of? Once again, more and more people looking down on me. More and more people... Just, I'm just the beggar, right? I'm just the guy that doesn't matter. And Jesus rubs the dirt on his eyes and says, hey, go. What's he thinking? I didn't wake, when I woke up this morning, I did not think someone would rub dirt on my face and tell me to go wash it off. But the guy goes, not knowing what's going to happen. He says, okay, well, what's one more shot? I'll do it. And he acts. He actually takes a step after trusting Jesus. Something about Jesus created a trust inside of this man. He encountered the light of the world, and he said, I, I think I can trust this man. I, I can trust him. And so he acts on his trust. And here's what I want you to know. There are times in our life where we can't just talk about things. Friends, I would even say we can't only pray about them. We need to, but we can't only pray. There are times when it's time to act. And when you read through your New Testament, you learn this, that I act. I actually take a step of trust. God moves every time. God loves responding to our obedience in trust. When we trust him and we take a step and we actually begin to act on what he's called us to, he moves every time, every single time. I love the way J.D. Greer says it. He says it this way, God's response to faith or trust, it's so reliable, steadfast love endures forever, so reliable that it might as well be an involuntary reflex. Now, he's not saying it is an involuntary reflex, like he can't control it, but what he's saying is he loves responding to our trust so much so much. It's just guaranteed. If I act in trust of God, I trust you in this area of my life, and I act, God will show up every single time. This is what I want you to know. Where, where trust exists, God moves every time. Don't hear it wrong. God's not a genie in a bottle that you can manipulate. If I act this way, God will do this. No, because here's what I've learned. As I act in trust, God responds every single time, but he doesn't always respond the way I think he should or the way I think that he would. 
Because he's sovereign. He's in control. He's the one that wins out. But I know that when I step out in trust, he's going to respond. And it's incredible when he does. Read through your Bible. It's really fascinating. Our faith brings about a power from God that simply isn't available until you trust him and act. It's just true. Think about Genesis chapter 22. You've got Abraham. And God says, Abraham, do you trust me? And Abraham says, yes. And God says, okay, but lip service is not enough. Sacrifice Isaac. Yeah, sure, God, I would. I would absolutely do that. I love you more than Isaac. Got it. Absolutely. He says, no, no, no. Like, actually, it's time to act. So he goes up on the mountain. And he responds by trusting God. I trust you, God. Your steadfast love endures forever. I can trust you. I don't know why you're asking me to do this, but I'm going to trust you. And he's getting ready to sacrifice his only son, and God moves. He shows up and says, no, 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 I've got, I've got this taken care of. You do trust me. What about Joshua chapter 3, where the Israelites are getting ready to cross the Jordan River, which was overflowing at the time, a scary moment. And he says, those carrying the ark, the moment their feet touch the water, the waters will part which means if their feet don't touch the water, the waters don't part. They get to the edge of the Jordan, their feet touch the water, and sure enough, God moves because God loves moving when we trust him and we act. When we act in obedience and trust, God moves. Exodus chapter 17, Moses and the Israelites are in a battle, and Moses makes his way up to the top of a a hill or a mountain there, and he looks over on the battle. And in an act of worship and trust to God, saying, you're the only way we can do this, he raises up his arms, Holds up the staff. and I got this one because my kids were watching a cartoon the other day, and this was in it. You're like, technology, Rob, from last week. And I'm like, yeah, but it was about Jesus. So he held it up. He held it up. And then they were winning. And God gave them victory each time it was held up. And when his arms came down, and it took everybody trusting God, like, hey, this thing is worth it. Let's act on this. Hold his arms up. And then what happens? There's victory. What about in John chapter 2, just a few chapters before this chapter, Jesus comes to a party, a wedding at Cana. And he's at this wedding party, and they're hanging out, and they run out of wine, which is horrible in that day. Horrible in that day. You're like, in that day, it's horrible in this Okay, it's horrible at a wedding in, in that day. So he comes to this moment, and he tells his disciples, fill those jugs with water and bring it to the master of the ceremonies. So they fill it with water. And it's not until they actually act, trusting that what he said was true. They act on their trust. And on the way to the head of the ceremonies, the water's no longer water, but it's wine, not just wine. Because God loves to move. He loves to move when we trust him. It's the best wine. You save the best for last. This is incredible. Because when we move, when we trust and act, God moves. Every time where trust exists, God moves. Now, this is what happened for this man. He trusted God, and God showed up and moved, and so he's healed. Now, this didn't make everything better for this guy, though. This guy then gets dragged in front of the religious leaders, if you read in John chapter 9. He gets questioned over and over again. They don't like what he's saying. So they push him aside. They say, let's go get his parents, and I love this. They go, and they grab his parents, and they bring his parents before, and they're just confused. Their son can see. He's never been able to see. This is just throwing everything off, and they say, tell us what happened. What's going on with your son? And I love their response. He's a grown man. Ask him. He's he's old enough. Ask him. Now, they were scared. If they began to engage, they'd get kicked out of the temple. They didn't want to do that. And so he said, look, look, he's right. Go. He's right there. He's old enough. He can answer for himself. So then they go and they get him again. And they drag him in front of him. And in verse 24, it says this. So the second time now, this guy's getting pulled all around. They called the man who had been blind and they said to him, give glory to God. Glorify God. Don't you forget. Glorify God. We know this man is a sinner. No, they didn't. They assumed he was a sinner because they didn't like what he was able to do because it removed all the authority from them. And it highlighted that they're not the saviors. He's the savior. They're not the light of the world. He's the light of the world. But again, John said, the light came into the darkness and the darkness did not recognize it. 
And in this moment, the darkness, spiritual blindness, is not recognizing the light of the world. And the man answers, look, I don't have it all figured out. He says, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I know is that I was blind, and because I encountered him, because his steadfast love endures, because I can trust him, now I see. Now I can see. He says, I don't know. I found someone I can trust, and that someone's not you guys. So for some reason, I'm not scared right now. I'm standing before you. I'm telling you the truth. I, I trust this guy because he has proven himself worthy. Jesus learns that this guy had been cast out because they just didn't like it, so they push him aside. Get out of here. We don't want to deal with you anymore. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. Having found him, he said to him, do you believe in the Son of Man? This man's confused, right? Because he hadn't seen He'd come back. Now he's encountering this guy who's coming to talk to him. Voice sounds familiar. And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him. You've seen him. Because his steadfast love endures forever. You've seen him. Because I told you to go wash. And when you acted in your trust and your faith, I showed up and I moved. So now you see him before you. It's he who is speaking to you. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. See, this is how it works. This is incredible. We act in trust and belief and faith. God moves and we look and say, wow, you're so good. And we respond in worship. You see, worship, singing songs that we were led in this morning and worship uh, through dedicating your life to him forever. Worship is a declaration to yourself, your own heart, and the lives of everyone else around you. I'm worshiping the one who's worthy. My worship is saying, I trust him and I trust him alone. He's the only one I trust because his steadfast love endures forever through the good times and the bad. He's seen me through it all. And I worship him in response to him moving after I've trusted him and acted because he loves meeting me there. So the question is, two questions I want to answer for you. One is this, why should you trust God? Like, Rob, I get it, the mud, the eyes, no one's rubbing dirt on my face. Why should I trust God? Like, why in my life should I trust him every day, even when it's not, not easy, during the hard times? Why is it that I need to trust him? The first one I would say is this, his power and his sovereignty. One, because he wins either way, because he is powerful. When you look back at your life and you begin to see that he was there, when you begin to see him moving, and a lot of times it doesn't happen until afterwards, you look back and you're like, man, you're powerful. Man, you were there the whole time. Man, you were directing that. You were controlling that. You're so sovereign, and I can trust you because of your power. You see him in the small things, like last night, sitting here with Ben, talking to him. I'm thinking, I did, we had no communication about this service, and all of a sudden, he forms the music around Psalm 136, and the whole sermon is written around this idea in Psalm 136, and all of a sudden, I'm like, yes, you're powerful, you're in control. The good times, and then in the bad times, through tragedy and difficulty, when we lose loved ones, and we go through pain and heartache, and yet we look back and we say, you were there the whole time, because you're sovereign, and you take the ashes and make something beautiful, and you take death and bring life and you take pain and bring joy because you were there and you're sovereign the whole time second reason we should trust him is this the consistency of his character and faithfulness he always responds guys man i want a whole church of people living this way knowing that he's always faithful he always responds to us he always comes and as he moves we gain wisdom look there's a lot of things in life that can get you smart a lot. You can study, you can learn a lot, you can get degrees, you can have job experience, you can get smart and have a lot of understanding, but wisdom comes from one source and one source only. 
The Bible says that the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It, wisdom comes from God. It's a gift given to us from God as we step out trusting him and he moves, we gain wisdom. I'd go so far as to say this. Wisdom is developed in different areas of our lives when we learn to trust God in those specific areas of our lives. Think about it this way. Who are the people you admire the most in your life? I'm a young parent. I've got young kids and Think about parenting. The parents that I look up to, that when, I'm, when it's all said and done, I want my life to be like theirs. I want to raise my kids similar to the way they've raised their kids. Those type of parents, they're not the ones that were the coolest. They're not the ones that went on all the trips. They're not the ones that under-disciplined their kids and never said no to their kids. And it always seemed like they were having a good time and took the best Instagram pictures and edited them perfectly. And everybody liked them. And that's not it. The parents I want to be the most like are the ones that in the hard times, the good times, they trusted Jesus and prioritized their family's values around him. And I look at that and I think, man, that's what I want. That's what I want in my life. What about marriage? The couples that I admire the most are not the ones that had the most, went on the best trips. They're not the ones that look the best and take the best pictures. None of that. The couples that I look at and, and I say, when my wife and I get to be that age, I want that marriage. They're the ones who, despite the difficulty, are still madly in love. They're the ones who, despite the hard times, they trusted God, said, your steadfast love endures forever, and we trust you with our marriage. What about money? Yep, I'm going there. The people I admire the most with finances are not the ones that have the most and spend the most and have the coolest stuff. They're not the people that always have to have the bigger house or the nicer car. The people I admire the most, they have a wisdom, a wisdom given to them by God because of their generosity and willingness to act in obedience and trust of what God is doing. And I look at them and I say, I want the contentment that you seem to have in my heart and in my life. So now we know, like, hey, why do we trust God? Because he's sovereign in control. His character is consistent. He provides us with wisdom. But what does it look like for you? What does it mean for us to trust God? Not just why should we, but what does it actually mean in this day and age for us to trust him? A couple things. First is this. Trusting God means you obey his commands because trust requires action. You actually have to do something. Stop just good intentions that you don't follow through on. Stop giving it lip service. Stop saying things that you would like to do one day, but then you never actually do it. Stop telling God that you'll do this and do that. Do it. Stop only forming uh, groups around things that we're going to talk about and pray about, but never do anything about Because trust means that I'm willing to act on this. I'm willing to actually make the hard decision, do the hard thing, walk in obedience. And that's when God meets us and does powerful things. Second thing is this. Trusting God means that you release control and we trust the outcome of our faithfulness to him. So I'm going to be faithful and whatever you want to do, do it. Charles Stanley said it this way. Obey God. Very simply, obey God and trust all of the consequences to him. Just do what he said. Be faithful, trust him, and let him take care of everything else in your life. So what about you? What are the areas in your life that you hold on a little too tight to the way I do parenting sometimes? Is it money? Like, God, I trust you with everything, but man, I don't know about my finances. You might, you might speak Christianese around it and say, I, I trust God with all my finances. His plan's the best plan. Let me ask you a question, a hard one. Do you tithe? You give 10%. It's what God's called us to. Whoa, whoa, Rob, hold on, don't go there. I'm not asking you to do it right now. I'm just saying in general, check your own heart, do you? You give 10% of what God blesses you with. Because that's what he's called us to do. That's a starting point. But Rob, if I did that, you wouldn't understand. I wouldn't know how this was going to come from or how I would do this. 
God says, test me in this. Trust me. Take a step. Act. I will move. I will meet you there. And there's story after story after story of people who step out and they believe that God will show up. It's people who say, you know what? This world doesn't have enough for me to not be faithful to God. I'm going to be faithful to him. It's like what the famous missionary Jim Elliott said. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep. It's not going with you to gain what he'll never lose. The wisdom and the fulfillment that only God can give. Well, maybe it's not money for you. Maybe you're, you're good there, but maybe it is parenting. Do you actually trust God with your kid's development and security? Or do you give it lip service? Because just coming in here and sitting in the seat isn't enough to prioritize Jesus in the lives of your kids. This is important. This is good. It's not enough. It's incomplete. Do you trust him? Do you trust him with the development of your kids? Because your, friends need, your, your kids need Christian friends and Christian influences more than they need worldly success. Do you trust God with your kids? Or do you trust band, sports, show choir, gymnastics, extracurriculars, and say that those things are more important and we can prioritize those things over and above the Christian influences that we're prioritizing in the lives of our kids? Those things aren't bad. They're all good things. But not at the expense of getting your kids together with other Christian believers who can walk through life with them. Lots of people can talk to talk. We use all the right words, but we don't act on them. We make all the right commitments, but we don't follow through on them. We don't. Here's the one thing I want you to know. You can't lead anyone, your kids included, somewhere where you're not going yourself. So when your kids look at you and they don't see a vibrant living, I trust in him because his steadfast love endures all things. If they don't see that kind of a relationship with Jesus in you, don't think they're going to trip and fall and stumble upon it for themselves. You have a limited amount of time with your children in your home. So let's stop wasting it, showing, that, showing them that God is just a hobby who deserves a minimal commitment level. Prioritize everything. Do you trust him with the development of your family? Will you say, as for me and my house, we're going to serve God no matter what. What about marriage? I know I'm hitting you hard. It's just truth. It hit me hard all week. What about our marriages? Are we more concerned with the happiness in marriage or holiness? Because God's more concerned with your holiness in your marriage. God wants you to be holy. God wants you to love each other. Yeah, well, I love you. yeah, we love good Christian marriage. It's awesome. What about when it's hard? What about when you need to extend forgiveness? What about when you have to let go of your own desires and actually serve somebody else? I heard one definition of marriage is this. Under the umbrella of Jesus, it's two people trying to outserve each other for their entire lives. And in those moments where it's hard to serve and love and lift the other person up, do you trust God to say, God, you know what? Less of me and more of you. What about your future plans? We're getting ready to close the service out here in just a moment. We're going to recognize and pray for our graduates because I believe this church should support them and pray for them consistently. We're going to pray for our graduates. And I would want to challenge them with a question that I would challenge each and every one of you that is challenging to me. It's this. Have you even prayed about? Have you even prayed about what God might want for your future? Or are you so preoccupied with your own plans that God takes a backseat to your desires? It's hard. But friends, here's the thing. When we actually say, you know what, I'm done. I'm just going to trust him. I'm going to take a step and I'm going to trust him with my kids, with my money, with my marriage, all of it. I'm going to do what God says to do. I'm going to trust him. He moves and he provides a wisdom because wisdom is developed in the different areas of our lives where we begin to release control and trust him in those areas. So what about you? Will you obey him, do what he's called you to do and trust him with all the consequences? Knowing that no matter where he leads me or what he does, his steadfast love endures forever. He will always be there. He's always going to provide. He's always going to meet you where you need him to meet you. And so this week in your life, is there an area of your life you've been holding on too tight to? And as we walk out of this place, 
Because church doesn't just happen here. We're gathered as we scatter and we go and we live intentionally for Jesus. One of the questions maybe you need to ask around the lunch table today and allow the feedback. Maybe you need a date night with your spouse. Maybe your group, as you meet in the discipleship group this week in homes, you ask this question or you answer it in front of your friends to provide accountability and you say, hey, there's this area of my life I've been holding on to pretty tight and I need to release control a little bit and trust God in that area. What's that area of your life? Let's pray.